Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Sarah Selecki. Sarah is a creative writer. She also runs her own creative writing school. She's also author of a couple critically acclaimed novels, and she'll tell you more about them in the podcast. Guys, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. Check me out on Instagram at NoorKidY, and we're part of the Comedy Here Often Podcast Network and 604 Records, so check them out too. Let's get into this week's episode, guys. You're going to love it. My guest this week, Sarah Selecki. Hey, welcome to another episode of God, Yay, or Nay. I'm here with Sarah Selecki. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sarah, I'm I'm really excited for this podcast. Uh, You're into uh, creative writing. You uh, run your own creative writing school called the Sarah Selecki Writing School, if I'm not am I correct in that you're correct (laughs) (laughs) you're author of a couple of books that are critically acclaimed and uh, yeah this is going to be awesome I love talking about creativity Uh, a lot of my audiences artists or people and just like a lot of different types of genres who create so uh, I I definitely want to jump into that and kind of give my audience some advice on how to become more creative and how to get the best out of their uh, writing and stuff um when we get before we get into that, maybe give my audience a little bit of a background on yourself, just so they kind of know who you are, where you come from. Sure, sure. Um, I'm Sarah, Sarah Selecki. I'm. I've been writing. I've been writing since I was a kid. Honestly, I'm one of the lucky people who actually like figured out something that I could do and study and that I was good at that I love to do at an early age. Um, and I've been I've been writing books since. I guess 2010, my first book came out um, and it was called This Cake is for the Party. And I've been teaching creative writing sort of simultaneously as a way to learn how to be a better writer. So in my emerging years, I began teaching informally just around my kitchen table. And then as the years went on and as I began publishing more and as the people who I began teaching I uh, started asking more and more complex questions and evolving in their journey. Um, my creative writing school emerged out of that. So right now it's all online, and um, and we have a we have a great community of writers who are working in all different genres now. It's really expanded, and I'm working now after writing short stories and a novel. Now I'm working on looking at TV. Um, my novel is being turned into a TV show. And Sweet. and nonfiction. I'm working more in the realm of nonfiction now. So I think I just keep reinventing what I what I want to write, which I think a lot of writers do and a lot of artists do. Just like, what's the new thing? What's the new thing? So yeah, I yeah. Think- and I guess that's kind of a part of that looking at yourself, kind of like, where do I need to go? Where do I have to grow? Because uh, from what I take, uh, that's kind of like a big part of your teaching, is it not? It is for me. It is for me. Yeah, I think that the 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 creative act comes out for writers in writing but it's you know it's like a fractal so it it 
spreads out. It's like how you design your life is creative, whatever kind of art you make is creative, the kinds of relationships you pursue, it's creative, it's all creativity. So mm -hmm. I try to build all of that in, like everything is material for a writer, everything is material. So um, I'm happy I get to work with writers who begin to bring their bring their writing both their you know their real lives and their imaginary lives and fiction and um working it all together in a in like a really personal way yeah mm -hmm. and like yeah all of this stuff is so personal so like it's kind of nice when you uh, do that like you actually tell the people you're teaching like hey this is like a search inside yourself because that's one thing I wish I kind of learned when I was like starting comedy. Like if someone told me that right away, like don't like don't look at all the other comedians or all the other work out there too much because that doesn't help you as much as like really searching inside yourself and like trying to find like what you have to say. Like uh, I, I think that's a big part of it. Is that not right? Yeah, I mean I think there's both, right? Like you've got to look outside of yourself, but you also have to have. Um, learn how to develop courage and trust in yourself so that the thing that you have to offer, which nobody else will have seen yet, it hasn't been modeled yet because it's only yours. You have to have enough like mm, courage to have, to give yourself the benefit of the doubt to try something new and also learn from everything that you are influenced by. I think that both streams happen at once. I think just, it's always balancing. It's always a balancing act. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Uh, it's, I think I've heard this before, like kind of learn the rules before you break them kind of thing, like get that foundation. And then yeah. when then you can yeah. really be able to explore with that. And uh, yeah, I mean, what I what I tell people is everything that you see, everything that you read in in for writers is teaching you something. So if you read something and you love it, whatever it is that sparkles to you about that thing that someone else has, it only sparkles to you because you have it somewhere yourself, you recognize it. And in the same way, if there's something out there that really gets under your skin and really, like you really can't handle, like you just wanna throw it against a wall when you read it because you don't like it, anything that brings that strong of a feeling out is trying to tell you something and teach you something about your own work and your own voice. So just don't discount anything, just take it all in as, as teaching. I love that. and. I think that you just what you said there is like uh, one thing I love. It's kind of like really pay attention to your emotions, right? Pay attention to like what triggers you. Um, I, I remember learning that a long time ago because when I found out when you find find something that's triggering you that that's coming authentic, like that's like something that like just for some reason it makes you angry, it makes you happy, it makes you whatever it is like really explore that. Why is that? Go deeper into that. And when you can come out of something from that, it's coming with that a little bit of that authentic emotion, which people will resonate with, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not, it sounds great. And as you know, probably from experience, like it's not easy no. like when you're like, it's not easy. It's not easy when you're feeling triggered like that. Like the first reaction, I think physiologically, our first reaction is just like, if it's something that we don't like, for example, it's just like, no, I'm not going to let that in. And I think it's hard to be in a creative state when we're in that reactive mode. Like, I think just mm. physiologically, there's probably some, I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist, but from what I've been reading and picking up, like, it seems to be those, those two things don't, you have to be to a certain extent in some place of calm, mm -hmm. your nervous system needs to be in some kind of an open state for you to then create. So 
uh, that's why it's really, I mean, yes, the concept, it's like very clear as you described that, like, yes, when you're triggered by something, like go in there, but easier said than done. Yeah, and it's easier said than done. And sometimes that's why, like, for me, journaling's kind of helped. I would, like, write it down and be like, hey, this, uh, for some reason, this really ticked me off. Or, or like, honestly, joy can be a part of it, too. This really made me feel amazing. And then come back to it later. Because you're right, I think in the calm state, that's when creativity flows a lot better. And, uh, yeah, you want to kind of do that in a better calm state. Um, But let's talk, uh, because I know you talk about, like, body awareness, somatic, stuff like that. I kind of want to talk like what kind of exercises do you get your students to do when you're just like, let's try to come back into our body. And like, why do you find uh, coming back into your body so important? Oh my God, so many reasons. I mean, to start and what, what, what brought me into understanding and learning more about somatics to start was just very simply to be able to write a scene where a character experiences something the character is a person who has a body and the experiences come in through the physical signals. So we're sh- we show our emotion and we show an emotional effect as writers through taste, smell, sound, um, visuals, like all the senses. And so my first introduction to embodied writing was just on a personal level. How do I show, not tell? And that's the, that's the thing that writers are always told, you show, not, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, which means instead of saying, instead of writing, um, she was really frightened when she heard the coyotes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is telling the abstract concept of frightened, of fear. Okay. Instead of that, you build it through scene. A writer builds it through scene. This is the creative part of creative writing, mm. where it's not a report. It's a create. It's a creative act. You build in what are the what are the cues that come in in the body that that show and ex- and express what fear is. Mm. So you know, a feeling of uh, like an acid feeling in the stomach, hairs going up on the back of your neck, like a feeling of goosebumps, a, f- a rigidity to the skin, like. There could even be a sense of how the how the light, like silvery, dark shadows describing what the light looks like. All of those descriptions, which are coming from physicality, mm-hmm. um, then are imbued with the emotion of fear. So the reader reads the scene and feels and gets to feel fear without being told fear. Like you don't ever have to use the word fear, and fear can come through the scenes. So that's that's where that's why the body was so important and in my teaching why i teach how to be in your body first because if you're going to be in your body for a character whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you need to know how it feels in a scene yourself mm. then you know as i started working that way i started to see this this unfastens writing this way really unfastens a lot of experiences for us and we hold a lot of things in our body mm-hmm. and again i'm saying for writers who are writing fiction or nonfiction, it does not matter, or any combination therein on the spectrum, it doesn't matter if you're writing about a character who's going through some kind, some form of um, transformation. The emotionality of it is held in the body, and you are reliving that and and putting yourself through that. So, if it's memoir that you're writing and it's about something that was emotionally difficult or transformative in some way, you're reliving it in your scenes. 
if you're writing a thriller, if you're writing a mystery, if you're writing romance, if you're writing literary fiction about, about like um, some form of trauma, you are re-embodying it as you write your scenes. So then I started to see that writers actually need, it would be useful for us to have a bit more support because when things come up in our bodies, we don't always know how to translate it to the page. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can get into a freeze state because we don't, because it's enacting, it's, it's um, re-embodying some form of trauma. Mm-hmm. And so then I began working with somatics and seeing like just grounding exercises so that we can quite simply calm our nervous systems long enough to know that something is happening. Mm-hmm. We're here, we're physically surrounded, like we're safe in this moment. And then we can, and then we can write with, it It just gives us more tools where we don't feel like blocked or, or angered or driven or in reaction. Mm -hmm. And like, I love that because you're really understanding what that emotion is. You're really understanding what that trauma is when you can sit with it and be with it. And then when you put that into your writing, I love that because now it's (laughs) the, the person reading it, they can actually feel that emotion too. Because I get it, dude. You say frightened, you're like, all right, I get it. Frightened doesn't doesn't, do much. It can gloss over it. You know, Mm. the 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 our language has such a way of doing that for us. It it makes it names things so that we don't have to refeel them, and um, you know, cliches do that, euphemisms do that, but also just writing abstractions can do that. So that you just like blah 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 blah. You skate over it. You get you grok it all, but you haven't actually experienced it in your body. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be quite liberating for a writer to learn how to do that, both for themselves and also to to be able to tell a story and show a story that another reader can experience as a separate experience themselves is quite liberating. And I think that's what writing, that's what good art can do. No, I think that's exactly what good art can do. And it's you're putting an experience in another person that opens their world too. That's why it's like such a powerful thing. And that's why I love these uh, kind of conversations because I, I, one thing I always love to like uh, tell my audience is like, let's encourage telling stories. Like let's encourage like whatever your form of telling stories is like do that. And I, I really think when it, uh, when it happens, the more stories, it really opens up the world for so many people. Because uh, honestly, through through stories and through comedy, uh, from seeing like other greats, that's what's opened my world to be like, oh shit, like there's so much more to like, do, uh, like I can do not only myself, but there's so much more you can tell and I can explore within myself. So I love that. So really, uh, it's really a nice thing. And I love this whole going into your body. So like when you start with... Uh, like students to how do they usually come uh, into this exercise? Do they ever resist it? Like, cause this must be new to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I've collaborated with a really wonderful instructor named Annie Bray, and she's the person who has created and designed somatic exercises that go along with each one of our story course lessons. So I have a foundational program, of course, and she's created a somatic ritual, a practice an exercise their audio recordings and they're included. So students, it's optional and encouraged. Everything is optional and encouraged. Nothing, you have to do everything. And because this is online, when I'm in person leading a call, I lead people through it and their experience is their own. And 
it is unusual. It is really different. And I know that some people come to it more readily than others. I think that there are those who are more kinesthetic around us, among us who, you know, oh, invite the body to it. Okay. Like those are our dancers. Those are our people who like, those are our physical comedians. Yeah, those yeah. are people who understand that that's like, okay, I understand things through my body. A lot of writers are very mental. They're like yeah, really yeah. cerebral, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so bringing the body into it is, is, really weird. I have a lot of lawyers in my classes, a lot of people who are in communications, a lot of like really smart, thinky people who inviting the body is like, really? Like, what do you mean body? <laughs> so, um, so I do it, I do it a little at a time and I always make it an invitation. And what happens in the small classes, um, when, when student, when writers go through the program together, often there's one or two people who just raise their hand first and say, oh my gosh, the somatic practices were so helpful. There are people who say like they've never had an experience free writing where they have been able to let their inner critic aside for that long. Mm. So, and that's one thing that, that these exercises can really help. Just like knowing where you are in physical space, knowing that you're in your body helps ground you so that when a voice comes up, because the inner critic is not going to go away. I don't think, I think it's there. I mean, we can talk about this. I wonder what you think of it, but I think, I think it's there in some ways to protect us, to guard us from going too deep or from possibly mm. getting too, going too far or protecting, it's protecting us. So when we are, when a writer is grounded and physically just feels like, okay, I am going to do this now. I'm going to go into this space. I'm not going to get lost. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going, I'm going to be able to come back from this. I'm in control of this. I'm on an adventure and this is part of my process. There's like a feeling of groundedness there. When the voice of an inner critic comes up, it's much easier to not just listen to it and have it take you off track. It's much mm. easier at that point because you're grounded to say, oh, that's the voice of my inner critic. Thanks for showing up. I'm going to do this anyway for the next 10 minutes and thank you. And I'm going to write this anyway. And I do talk about doing things in 10 minute increments, especially at first, like, you know, you build on it, baby steps, 10 minutes, a lot can happen on the page in 10 minutes, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, so I think that a little at a time really helps. And then what happens is one or two people start experiencing some great results from feeling like, oh, that wasn't as hard as I thought, or, oh, it's there. I always have access to this. I thought I was blocked. I'm not actually blocked. I'm just in a, in a freeze state. It's a freeze response because I don't mm -hmm. want to go into this thing. And then they show that's the benefit of writing in community. It's solitude. It's solo work, but they can show like, oh, the somatics really help. Working this way really helps. And then other people are more apt to try it after they see that it's working for someone else. Oh, that's beautiful. No, I really like that. And, uh, yeah, actually, and the, the, you talked about the inner critic. I guess this is kind of like the battle of uh, every artist, pretty much. Uh, how, how do you like tell people about the inner critic, or how would you even describe the inner critic? I mean, there's a lot. I've I've been reading a little bit um, about uh, brain science with Jill Bolte Taylor. She has a new book out um, that is really interesting, and she breaks. She's the person who had that really famous TED talk about. Um, having a stroke and the left side of her brain would go offline periodically. So just the right side of her brain was that it's, if oh, you wow. haven't listened to it, it's fascinating. Wow. It's fascinating. So her first book was called my stroke of insight. 
and she describes what it feels like to be living. She's a neuroscience scientist herself. So mm-hmm. when she was having the stroke, she knew what was happening, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which damn. was like, what? Um, she has another book out now where she talks about four personalities in the brain. And that's sort of what I'm looking at now and thinking like, how does that refer to the inner critic? Like, but I think the inner critic shows up um, that's all just like a sidebar <laughs> like, <laughs> for further reading. But I think the inner critic shows up as someone who wants things to be done right, wants things to, doesn't want, doesn't, my inner critic doesn't want me to make a fool of myself and is always protecting me from that. And the and, thing is with creativity, with creative risk, you, you got, as a comedian, you probably know this more than most. <laughs> you have to be willing to take that risk in order to, to come, to come to that place of vulnerability that, um that is moving that that Mm -hmm. is that's the art the art is in doing that so my relationship with the inner critic is one of um like harmonious sort of benevolent tolerance um i'm not trying to kill it or get rid of it forever i don't think that that's even possible and there's also something of like a kind of at the same time um like laughing at it because it's quite silly. What it what it says when you if you were to write down all the things that your inner critic tells you, and then you compare it with like twenty other people, it's so derivative. It's saying the same thing that everybody else's inner critic is saying. Like it's not particularly unique or smart. It's just putting up these blocks. Like no one's gonna read that. No one wants to hear that. You're you're not very original. It's all these <laughs> like everybody hears the same things. Yeah. Um, so at the same time, I say, I like, like, don't take it too seriously. You, you're allowed to laugh at it and say, like, it's kind of silly. And at the same time, respect it. It's there. It's part of you. It's part of your ego. It's part of a whole body system. You don't want to be someone who walks around the world without having any controls. Um, it's like, it helps. It just, it's just overactive and, um, we don't get to hear the other side, that quieter creative voice just is whispering all the time because we're in such a left brain dominant culture and society that it's just overbearing. The inner critic just gets more airtime and it's fine, but we really do, you can respect it for what it is, but also give due respect to that quieter voice that is telling you to take that risk, that is telling you to show that thing, that is telling you to try drawing the line this way instead. You know, those unusual, unusual whispers also deserve more airplay. I love that. I think that's like such a great way of saying it, like airplay. You're giving it too much airplay and you just need to cut it down a bit because I know a lot of times some people think it's like a battle with the inner critic, which I think is a really bad way to look at it, like you were saying. It's uh, more of uh, trying to find a healthier relationship with your inner critic. And totally. like it, yeah, and the way you described it is perfect because if you kind of look at your inner critic and realize it is silly and realize like what the stupid shit it's kind of telling you all the time, if you really look at it, then you can, like if you have a playful attitude with your inner critic, it's so much better because then you can, when it comes up, you can kind of like not only recognize it and be like, hey, I see you there and kind of like be playful with it. It it doesn't really, you don't have that kind of conflict with it, which can kind of sometimes bring it up even stronger. A hundred percent. 
100%. Fighting it off sometimes can make it seem even stronger, like it's some kind of war that you're at, that you're in the middle of. And it's not. It's not a war. It's like like that annoying person at the family reunion, you know? It's like <laughs> that. Yeah. It's just like it's that guy, and you just you just kind of have to like wink at it and be like, "Thanks, yeah. ha, ha, ha. Here, it's, have it's a like, slice of pie, and I'll see you later." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like an internet troll. It's like don't feed the troll. Just like don't I feed don't, it. Yeah, yeah, don't feed it. Yeah, yeah. Look at it and go, "All right, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> I'm just gonna move on with my life." <laughs> <laughs> that's uh no, that's a uh, great, and uh, I think that is great advice for people. Um, yeah, you got to find a way to have that uh, better better relationship with your inner voice like those thoughts that constantly pop up and um you're right because when you can actually like find a way to get more into the silent creative part that's where most of like the best stuff flourishes out of I, I think I was talking about it with someone on another podcast um but like a lot of us when we were too cerebral like you were talking about like a lot of times you're with people who are lawyers or just like really smart people who have like a really good intellect but sometimes just because of that they're they have so much of this surface knowledge and stuff so they think they can create out of that surface knowledge which is just like it, it doesn't work that way there, there's always going to be a lot of surface knowledge in all of us whether it's uh, whether it's like uh, something intellectual or whether it's just like culture or whatever it is like pop culture that's always in there but if you're digging out of that it's always going to come out so much so so shallow right it doesn't it's not going to hit yeah. too much so i mean it would feel like it might even be quite deep because it might even seem to be quite deep in one sense because um when you're in that cerebral space, there are thinkers and philosophers and cultural theorists and like post-structuralist theorists. And like, it can go quite deep in the, in the socio-political languaging of, of ideas. And, mm. um, I, I, I just hesitate with shallow because I feel like people, thinkers can go so deep and yet I, I do know what you mean. Like sometimes I say wooden, like it just feels like the texture is something that I can't, like, I can't, Get there. I don't feel like I can't. It doesn't resonate. Right. Of it. it doesn't resonate. It doesn't have another. Te it has like an all one texture and it's very dense. It's like a very mm. dense concrete texture. And, um, and it's really, it's really challenging to unwind from that. If you've been rewarded for being that kind of a thinker, both like with gold stars in school and you know great paychecks and good jobs and people like rewarding you for being that kind of a thinker which i think our culture does mm -hmm. um it can be even harder for you to take a step back and take a risk of something that doesn't have that armor doesn't have that density of language around it or that cerebral um you know float the flotation device that is that that kind of intellect to go to go off into water without that flotation device is can be feel quite vulnerable to some. Mm -hmm. and yeah i guess that might be a little bit of the difference between like writing and stand-up comedy though because like uh i'll tell you like i i was that person i used to be very cerebral and i used to like think i could like think my way into writing good comedy but right. I never got rewarded for that. Trust me. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, Interesting. Yeah. And like, so I, what, like one of the things that I talk to my writers about is like, don't try to think something up. It's so hard to think it up too. Like mm -hmm. it's just so it feels harder. Like it's like, ah, like 
if you try to think something up, your brow gets furrowed and you're just, you know, it's, it's, um, it's gritty. It's a gritty experience. And what I tell my writers is instead of trying to think something up, just be open to receiving something. Like, is that, do you, do you relate to that in comedy? Oh, that's, uh, that's what uh, changed with me. Like I used to always think up stuff and like I you the comedy was always very like how you said it didn't have the great texture like I would still kind of get laughs here or there but what like when I did find out like that whole receiving thing and honestly I'll tell you the first time I really felt that it was when I was on mushrooms and I was just out in nature and I remember just kind of sitting there and being very silent and just completely like just with nature and all of a sudden I just felt in my head like an idea just bubble up and it was just a joke and it came out and I told the joke to my friends and like we all just started laughing and I was just like holy shit like that uh, that's a new way of like that was receiving a joke and like that changed my whole perspective of pretty much what I uh, how I wrote my material I really started to be like okay it's receiving it because that at that point, that was probably one of my best jokes I ever wrote. And it was just like, I was like, I don't feel like I wrote that joke. I felt like it was given to me. But yeah. like, that's what I found yeah. out. Like, that's what kind of creativity is. It's like, yeah. it's because you have to find a way to receive. And yeah. um, that's when when it really changed because and and also I, the one thing that changed in my writing after that was like, it wasn't it wasn't complicated. It wasn't cerebral. It wasn't like, I'm trying to like, I always thought like that I'm going to be like the big thinking comedian and like my thought, like everyone's going to be this guy so smart and hilarious at the same time. All of that got out and my comedy became very simple, but like in the simplicity of it, it connected with so many people because people were like, holy shit, I never even thought about that. That was simple and like funny. And I like that. And that's like, where I'm like, okay, this is, this is new. And that's where I started exploring a different path. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, that aspect of simplicity, I mean, there are some good haikus out there, you know, that when you read those three lines, it's just so jarring and you feel like there was the lifetime before you read the, those three lines of poetry and then life after you read those three lines, like something <laughs> yeah. happens in the spark and it's so simple. Um, but I think that the most profound things often come to us that way. And uh, yes, being in nature is a, is a huge part of my creative process. And um, I often, whenever I'm leading in-person writing retreats, I bring as like, a, doesn't matter what genre people are writing in, this is not a, it's not a nature writing retreat. I always bring people out on in nature hikes because the answers to any craft problem that we have are in nature. Like <laughs> any problem that you have, what point of view am I working on? How do I edit this thing? What stage of revision am I am? Why am I stuck? You go out into nature with the feeling of, with the question and just paying attention, the answer's all there. It's all mm -hmm. there. Yeah. No, that's right. And paying attention, I think that's find out how to pay attention for real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit. So we were talking about the inner critic. I want to kind of like, how does this relate to kind of like other forms of resistance, maybe writer's block? Like I know that's writer's block has to be huge for actual writers. Like I know like even as comedians and like other types of artists, like we still have to do our own kind of writing or do our work kind of like and try to make that like an everyday habit. 
Um, so we have our own forms of it. Uh, do you do you kind of see a like when you see writer's block or resistance? Do you see that in connection with the inner critic, or do you kind of see it as separate? Some no. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. I think that. Um... I think, as I mentioned before, sometimes it can be a freeze response. If you're really blocked um, and there's there's something you want to write but can't and it's painful, mm. um, I feel like that could be, um, you know, there's a deeper, there's a deeper inner critic that's like um, kind of predatorial that sometimes is like deeper, deeper patterned thoughts that are actually telling us that we're not that we're not good enough or we're not safe or we're not going to be okay sometimes linked to trauma sometimes linked to um who we are culturally socially like where we you know the luck of how we've been born what where we've been born our privileges etc and um you know what what those voices tell us sometimes can be quite harmful um which is where somatics comes in to 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 like feel safe there's also um, a kind of resistance that, you know, the, the greater the thing is that you are seeking to release or express or discover, uh, the more important it is to you, kind of the bigger the shadow is that's, that it casts, you know? So um, thinking of resistance sometimes as that shadow, that the more resistance you feel, it's kind of a sign that it's that it's actually the most important thing for you to write. If you really feel like, um, uh, like almost repulsed by it, then it's probably a sign that there's something else there. And and sometimes that repulsion isn't even coming in in a voice of words of an inner critic. It's much bigger than that. And then I feel like that's like has something to do with shadow work that we're being called to evolve. You know, when yeah, when that is yeah. happening, we're being called to to grow in some way through our art. Um, and that revulsion, that repulsion or that feeling repelled by doing that thing is, is the opposite. It's like the other, you flip that around and it's a magnet. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know? Um, and then there's another kind of resistance that is just like, we're, we're in a cult of productivity and um, making, making, making more and more and more. We're on the hamster wheel of like, and it's just getting faster and faster and you know, more content, more content, more content if you are on some kind of a track like a publication track or something in your artistic career where you just like you need to be producing and people keep asking you what are you working on how is that what is that um we need to rest and that's not you know naturally built in so sometimes i feel like what looks like resistance could also just be a natural fallow period and we don't mm -hmm. have to name it anything bad it's just rest and that needs to happen too so i i i like to you know encourage people to journal about it, go for long walks, go in nature <laughs> and, and see what, what the messages are around the block. Um, because being blocked can, can mean many different things and it can feel it has different flavors. That's uh yeah, that's such a great way to, uh, actually like talk or conceptualize resistance because I've never, i uh, never heard it like that. And like the different types of resistance as well. And uh, you're right, like you kind of have to explore it too and like see what it really is. Cause sometimes it couldn't be rest, but sometimes it could be like the biggest call in into like what the next stage of your artistic growth is. I've, I've had that happen to me before. Like now, like <laughs> that's kind of funny. You're sparking up a bunch of my memories of like coming up as a comedian. But uh, like, I do remember um, 
the first time like thinking because I've always been into spirituality and self-discovery and inner work that kind of stuff but I never really talked about any of that in my comedy and I remember that was such a block for me and like I remember going through stages of just not writing anything for such long periods of time and it was that it was like no it was because this was what was like my next stage it was like be able to write something on this topic and uh when I finally broke out of that, I did come up with like a couple of my best bits, which are kind of very spirituality focused in the bits as well. And very uh, brave. Yeah. And I think it's really brave to come out of that, like in, in our culture. Um, it's, I mean, I, I, I shared that like writing my last novel, um, I was blocked in many places because my main character has these spiritual experiences. She sees auras. Um, I don't see auras, but I was I, I was imagining what it would be like to, I've met people since writing the book who do see auras, but I don't see them. But I was imagining something that's metaphoric that shows a, a sense of energy, receptivity, the creative process, and that illustrated it nicely. And it was really difficult to write about that from a place that felt honest because it kept the... I felt like my inner critic kept wanting to make it satirical and make fun of it, but it's not satire and the book is not satire. And what's interesting is even through the process of writing the book and breaking through that and writing a book that I feel really proud of that is honest and true, the publisher then marketed it as satire because I don't think the publisher was able to see. Oh, to wow. See yeah. In the States, the American publisher really branded it as, as satire. So then when people read it expecting satire, they're like, yeah. But then there are other readers who read it and they're like, this isn't satire at all. I'm like, no, it's not satire. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, the inner critic was channeling your publisher, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Um, all right. Another thing I heard you mentioning about, um, which is really interesting. I, 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 this is work I've never done, but you talk about like your dreams and synchronicities like that, uh, that's something I've uh, always kind of thought about and really respect the kind of work people do around it. I've never incorporated it. So I'm just kind of interested. Uh, how, what do you do to incorporate it? And like, how, how, how has it helped you personally? Oh, yeah. Um, it's super weird. Like, I don't understand. I don't have any kind of manual around it because it's very mysterious to me. Um, but I do, I will say that when you're in a state of receptivity, so when you're in a state of creative flow, you've had that experience too that you described where things just come to you mm -hmm. um, and you don't know where they come from. And, and writers often have um, character voices come to, like often uh, one way that, that, that writers will experience that feeling of something coming to them that they didn't think up is through characters' voices in dialogue. Sometimes a, a character will pop up in a scene and they're like, I don't know where that person came from. I didn't write it. I don't know who this person is and it's coming up. So I will say that as a fiction writer who works with a lot of fiction writers and I work in fiction a lot, I'm already tapping into that part of the brain where the imagination lives and it kind of mixes up with the subconscious mm. in this kind of way that, you know, if you if you can, if I can put my the left side of my brain sort of offline and just, you know, have it on basic default mode so I can write sentences and, you know, form letters and all the rest of it, but yeah, not, yeah. not overacting, then I can tap into this place where the imagination 
image exists. And I think that the subconscious in our dreams plays with image in the same way that writers do when they're writing scenes. If you're taking, if you're really showing things and you're writing about someone's yellow dress and the yellow dress means everything, that's the language of dreams. Dreams mm -hmm. do that as well. It's metaphor. It's metaphor is how we it's how we take all of that in and understand it archetypally. Like I think there are Jungian therapists who really work with this um, in a long way. But what I have found that when I'm deep into a project, whether it's a short story or a longer piece of work, um, those aspects of story and image become really fluid with aspects of metaphor and image in my dream life. So there, it, it, I don't know how it happens, but there are times where I write something and then I dream it, or I see something and then I write it and I dream it. There's like the physical reality, my imagination, and what happens in my sleep kind of mix up and time gets a little wobbly. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and I think that that's, I think a lot of artists, this feels, it feels great to talk about it here, but it does feel a little bit like weird to talk about it around the dinner table to, to, to non-writers because mm -hmm. what are you saying? Like not chronological time, but it really does feel that way where I will write something many times in my novel. I wrote something um, that I imagined or felt that I imagined. And then in the physical reality of our world, it would happen, you know, two weeks later. And mm. I think this happens, writers, if you talk to writers long enough, this happens to us. And I think it's something about being tapped into the zeitgeist. I think it's something about our psych, our subconscious is always watching for cues and clues and picking things up that we don't consciously know that it's picking up. Um, and then there's that whole, like, you know, the McLuhan thing, like you don't, no, if it's once you decide to buy a car, then you see that car everywhere. Like there are things like that that are happening psychologically that I don't understand. But my experience of it as a person feeling through the pro the creative process, it feels like what I dream comes true, what I imagine comes true, what I see in my physical world feeds my dreams, that feeds my imagination. And all of that becomes a nice soup that is not chronological, it is not linear. <laughs> and I'm just like swimming in it as I create something. Um, I think that like one of the one of the characteristics of the flow state is a feeling of like timelessness, like mm -hmm. you lose sense of time. And I think that's probably related to it, where time linear time goes out the window and image is king. Image just begins to reign. And in the world of image, metaphor and feeling and all of that happens kind of outside of language. So then you just decide how you're going to put it into a story and how you're putting it into language. And it can feel quite mystical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a very, very cool uh, way of like looking at it. Uh, that's uh, no, honestly, that's really cool. Um, yeah. And just, you're right. Dreams kind of speak to you in that metaphor all the time. And I just like, sometimes, I don't know, lately I've been like paying attention to my dreams just because I've been getting such vivid dreams. And I, I think it might be because I'm like in a, really creative spot right now where I'm writing a ton and I'm trying to build up a new like hour of comedy so I'm like in a really creative uh spot right now and I think my dreams are kind of communicating that to me totally um, yeah and I think I need to like sometimes I've been writing them down after I wake up 
but I think I should make that like maybe a little bit more of a priority because uh, so I've only write down the ones that have just like just stood out where I'm just like what the hell was that like that was because like now my dreams are starting to like come up with like I feel like a movie like where they have like a beginning middle and end where you're just like oh I don't know it's uh, it's interesting and uh, do you write down your dreams? So rich. Yes, I do. I write them down and then I promptly forget them. Um, yeah, but sometimes yeah. just the act of writing them down, sometimes like if you're telling them to someone, if you're ever telling your dream to someone, sometimes just like articulating, taking that, that experience, that image, and those experiences that have no language attached. And then the act of putting them into words sometimes makes an aha, makes an insight come mm -hmm. because, because you're, your subconscious is showing you something um, and it's working through stuff. You know, it's like, it's a really big part of just how we process our days, right? So if mm -hmm. your days are spent creatively generating new material, it makes sense that your subconscious would spend your night processing, sifting, digesting, and like metabolizing all of that work you're doing, all that creative work. And when I write down my dreams, often it's just writing it down that tells me like I don't need to I don't need to go back and reread them I don't even need to really remember them but writing them down is really important because by articulate for example <laughs> this is a really silly example but I swear it's like true it's literal and true but it is like silly and obvious I had a dream that I was at this party. it was like all the things you know I was at a party I was gathering the things there was a suitcase there was a bag I had to do the thing I've got the bag I put it on the table I opened the bag and like a cat walked out but as I was writing it, it was like, oh, I let the cat out of the bag. And that sort of stuff happens for me a lot where like my word, like the words aren't present in the experience of the dream, but in putting them into words, I understand what I'm trying to tell myself. Ah, that's hilarious. That's actually, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, I think that's like another level of like really looking through yourself and stuff, like just going through your dreams. Um, it really... Yeah, that, that, can, that can be powerful. Um, mm -hmm. All right, another thing I did want to tell, I'll talk about is uh, the whole idea of uh, like the hero's journey. Um, this is like, I think like for a lot of us, especially like uh, myself, who I, I guess I don't go into like writing schools that much, but I, I'm, I'm very interested in it. So I always hear about the hero's journey. Like everyone talks about this circular journey that's, um, that. They, like I've, I've heard people say like this is what every story is kind of based on like uh, how, how do you uh, look at that do you believe that that's what like are there's other story structures and like I know you said something about a heroin journey and stuff like, there are other story structures and I think that um, it's I think that the hero's journey is one way to uh, square a circle if you know what I mean like it's mm -hmm. one way to take something that is image-based, that is mythic, that is archetypal, that is about images, just what we were talking about, what the, the subconscious speak, speaks to us in image. And the hero's journey is one way. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a narrative that is placed over multiple stories <laughs> and experiences so that it makes sense in that way. And I think that we can do that with a lot of things. And I think there are other story structures out there. So for sure. I mean, one um, wonderful book about this is Thomas King's The Truth About Story. The Truth About Stories is, is a great, it's a massy lecture, but it's also, um, it's also a publication by Nancy. And 
he he explores he like breaks this down and explores this just in like there are different indigenous story roots like there are other ways of looking at story that are not this hero's journey and not the like individualistic journey it's not it's like not linked to the hero as the one who goes on the quest like does the various battles comes back with the thing and brings back brings it back home success mm -hmm. so it's like it's a standard and i think that if we lean too far as i think our, uh, we may we may have done um hollywood uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the hero's journey the the consequences are that that's creating our culture our stories create our culture so if we lean really on the hero's journey we're creating a culture of heroism of individualistic ness of yeah, like yeah. A, a, a feeling that there's someone who's going to save us from something else that some a feeling of good and bad good and evil and some good must triumph over evil all of those things are just tropes that's just one way of looking at a story um so i am looking i'm looking at different ways of seeing the heroine's journey there's a great book by gail Carriger called the heroine's journey um which is really meant for writers and and people who are writing stories. There's an older one by Maureen Murdoch called The Heroine's Journey, which is much more about um, personal work and transformation looking through story. Both are great. There are, there are several other, not, I was going to say lots. There aren't actually lots, <laughs> but yeah. there are several. Um, and my favorite of the moment is Gail Carriger's because she's careful to point out that it is not a gendered, heroine like a heroine can harry potter is a heroine and she describes that one of the things that heroines do is they have a bunch of great friends who they know are good at different things and they delegate responsibilities and they work as a collective um that's one of the things that a heroine can do that's different than a hero she doesn't do it or they don't do it all by themselves mm. um the other aspect of the heroine's journey that i find is really interesting is that in the hero's journey the assumption is that we start from a place of status quo, all is well, and then dun, 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 mm -hmm. um, the adventure starts. And in the heroine's journey, you start from a place of disconnection. All is not well. You are not born into an equalized world. Things are not, things are, un, there's injustice from the very start. This is where you start. And so the journey is one of equalizing and um, integration of different aspects. There's like going into the shadow not to conquer the darkness, but to integrate something of shadow within you and coming back out on the other side, more whole and integrated. And that's a totally different way to look at the story structure. Way so, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and all about, I think all story, what it has at its key is it's it's about transformation in some way, but how we get there, I think it's really interesting for creators to pay attention to what our story models are because we're making culture that's what we're doing as our as yeah. the artists of here so um the values that we put like the stories that we pursue have real consequences in the people who receive our stories you know we live it out yeah damn that is uh, that's a powerful way of saying that and you're right we are making culture and the hero's journey has been basically what our culture has been giving us for the whatever how long and it is uh, something that has made us more individualistic, more hero oriented. I, I think I look at that, um, I, I'm even like thinking personally, like I have looked at that, like where it's like, 
oh, I have to be the hero in my story. Like, that's how I even look at my life. It's like, it's more me, but you're right. It's like, if you're more collective, look at the people around you. How can they help? How can we do this together? How can I look at other people's skills and be like, oh, those are come with mine rather than this being like, I'm the hero and I have to have like, I have to have the overpowering skills to make it all happen and make everything around it. Like, it is very individualistic and it, uh, yeah, you're right. As artists, we drive that, uh, we drive culture. So if we're going to be individualistic, we're just going to create a more individualistic culture, which I think a lot of us, even when we look at our, our values, our values as artists, most of us aren't that at all. Right. No. And yet it looks that way. Like it, that, that, if that still looks like what success is, it's both a recipe for burnout, you know, for shame when things don't feel like, like you're measuring up, like with, if, you know, um, and back to the resistance conversation, like if you can't write something and you're feeling blocked, if you're living in the hero's journey, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like what's the, what's the block? What's the thing you need to yeah. conquer in order to get over that? Like what do you, ha, 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 ha. If you're living in another story, then maybe this is an invitation to go into the shadow. It's an invitation to go into the underworld. Maybe it's an invitation to, to sleep for 10 years. Maybe it's like, there are so many other, to ask someone for help. You know, um, that's uh, yeah, that's a great yeah. way of uh, yeah, that's and uh, you're right. If you're only thinking conquer, <laughs> like, <laughs> there's only a few directions you can go with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. no, that's uh, honestly, I love that. Uh, thanks, Sarah. This was honestly amazing. I got one more question. It's the question of the podcast. Answer any way you like. But uh, Sarah, God, yay or nay? Oh, yay. Yay, Yay, God, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Yay. <laughs> what else are we, what else are we doing here? What is writing? Yeah. I, I was just oh, thinking like, what is it? <laughs> I don't know. What's I a guess, dream. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess with your, uh, just like your whole journey with writing, I, I guess that's probably influenced your spirituality quite a bit. I think it, I think it has not, you know, I grew up Catholic um, and, you know, I'm not a practicing Catholic now, but I grew up, as I say, believing in something that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that is part of why my imagination is strong and why I can write fiction is partly that. So I'm, I think that there's space for that. Um, Personally, it's just all, the mystery is uh, a big, I have a lot of respect for the mystery. Yeah. Can't think it, can't figure it out, but I respect it. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, as a religion, when you grow up in a religion, I grew up Muslim, like uh, you believe in something that isn't there, but yeah. you become an artist and you believe in something else that isn't there. That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just kind of changes yeah. over time. Um, Sarah, this was so much fun. Uh, please let my audience know where they can get a hold of you. Uh, uh, tell them about your books again and uh, anything else you yes. want to promote. Thanks. Please. Yes, please. You can you can find me at sarahsaleckiwritingschool.com and my novel Radiant Shimmering Light is available in bookstores everywhere and my book of short stories This Cake is for the Party similarly available in bookstores everywhere so <laughs> you can find me in those three places. Oh, thank you so much Sarah. This was amazing. Thank you. It was wonderful. I appreciate it. All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. 
You can check me out at NewerKidY on Instagram or check out my website, NewerKidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.